Good morning. Uh, my name is Philip Maxwell. I'm the youth pastor here at Fort Worth Prez. Again, I want to reiterate Ryan's welcome to you. We're so glad you're here this morning, particularly if you're visiting. So thanks for being with us. In a moment, we'll read from Luke's gospel as our text this morning. So you can begin turning to Luke 18 if you'd like. But just to set where we are, we are between completing, at long last, completing the letter to the Hebrews that the pastor or author says could have even been shorter. So it's a lesson to us. We completed it last week. We're about to move into a fall series on Ecclesiastes. And this morning we are hearing from Luke's gospel. So here's a short break in between two long series. For something a bit shorter and I think appropriate to our time as well. Today we'll be looking at Jesus' encounter with a rich ruler. Um, I want you to think about something as we read the text together. It's a small question, but I think one that will hopefully highlight something that's goes through our text this morning, and that is, I want you to think about what's wrong with the ruler's question. Okay, what's wrong with this question? Let's turn now and read Luke 18, verses 18 through 30. I think it's on page 877 in your blue Bible in front of you or under your seat. So Luke 18, 18 through 30, hear now God's word. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, He became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is the reading of God's word. Let's ask him now to teach us his word. Father, we pray that you would be gracious to us. Open our eyes to see um, Jesus in your gospel this morning. Help us see how this is good news for us and rest to our weary souls, we pray. These things in Christ's name by your spirit. Amen. So this morning, I want to give you a little frame for our text. Um, it's a short encounter, but there's a lot of depth to it. To sort of frame our text, you can see it there in your bulletin. Three short points for you. First, the facade of greed. Second, the grip of greed. And third, freedom from greed. Okay, the facade of greed, the grip of greed, and freedom from greed. So first, the facade of greed. Well, where do we see that in the text? Um, kids facade is something that covers the outside, much like paint on a car. It doesn't help it stay intact, but it does help it look beautiful. Where do we see this ruler's facade of greed? Let's do what often makes the most sense. Let's start at the beginning. That's what he calls us to do. Look at verse 18. What's the ruler's question there that I asked you to consider? What's his question? The text tells us that he was a rich ruler. In other gospels, we learn that he's a young man. And this story is often called the story of the rich young ruler. So we know a few things, right? This man had authority over others. 
From the way that he was, he's described here, he was actually quite wealthy, right? He's called extremely rich. And we know that being described as young, he's probably between 15 to 25 or so, so the age of many of you in this room. Um, no matter the case, though, he was someone who was put in charge of much. He had authority over others. He mattered in his community because he was in charge. He managed a staff, maybe, or a fund or endowment, significant wealth, or in some case, somehow, resources of his community. So what's wrong with this question? Again, this question is not unique to Luke's story of the rich ruler. You might remember it from Peter's sermon at Pentecost after he finishes preaching and many, many, many people are saved. This very same question is the one that comes to the fore that hits you after his sermon. It's also asked at other points in Luke's gospel and in other gospels. It's asked a lot. It's not ever called a bad question, but what's wrong with it? What's the problem? I think you see that you have to slow down a little bit. We have to consider carefully what he asks, but not only what he asks, how he asks it. So this question, finally, we'll look at it. It is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I want you to get this, simply. The emphasis of his question is on what he'll receive. Look at the way that he says it. Look at the way that he phrases his question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Get that. His question has a direction to it, right? A vector to it. He, it points toward himself and what he can gain and how he can gain it. So immediately, we learn his approach. In other words, we learn where this guy is coming from, from the very beginning of the story. His approach is transactional. It's part and parcel of the way that he lives his life. He is someone who rules, right? Who exercises authority. That's almost embedded in the way that he asks his question. The ruler frames his question in terms of a bargain, right? Or a deal of sorts. What must I do to receive or inherit? His question is focused on what he can get from God. He's interested to find out what he can receive and how much of it he can receive. So if you've read this before, maybe you've looked at the story a lot or at least heard it talked about, I want you to try and read it with fresh eyes for the first time and just get how Jesus' answer is so shocking, right? It's shocking. We think he'll answer in terms of, I don't know, grace, salvation, faith, something Jesus-y, and he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at all. The guy asks, how can I get into your kingdom, Jesus? And Jesus replies with, earn your way in. It's like, what? Why would Jesus respond that way? That's counter to everything we know about him. But Jesus answers the ruler on his own terms. Right? He respects him. He answers it in terms of what he can do to deserve God's recognition, a due reward for work done. Earlier in Luke's gospel, as I said, this question is asked before, then is asked by a lawyer, um, a lawyer who's good with words. That shouldn't surprise us, right? That's, again, common to their profession. And the lawyer rebuts with a question in that passage, the same as in our passage, passage, seeking to do the very same thing, right? That is, he wants to make others, namely Jesus, perceive him as worthy, as meritorious, as having done things that cast him in a good light, favorably in some way, noble, so that people will say, you know that lawyer or that ruler? He's really for justice. He's really, he really cares about people. He wants to do what's right. We're moving a little further. You know that king or that president, that boss, that project manager, that room mother, that mother or father, that coach? What a solid moral leader. That's what the ruler is after right from the beginning. So what's his flaw? What's the ruler's flaw in his question? It's that he's interested in the thing received, not given. He's interested in how he can get from God what he wants, how he can make himself who he thinks God wants him to be. 
For God to see him in a way that settles him, that gives him contentment, peace. In a word, he's trying to justify himself. That's why he asked Jesus that question, the way that he asks it. He's looking Jesus in the face and attempting to justify himself. Pretty bold. Pretty bold. I think this, his approach actually has a lot of economy to us today, right, for us sitting in this room. It's not that hard for us to see ourselves the same way the rich young ruler approaches Jesus. I think we actually approach God all the time this way, asking, what's the minimum that I must do, God? What's the bare minimum that I've got to do to have your favor, right, to make you happy, to be at peace with you? I think we all the time are looking for ways to bend God's justice to make ourselves fit, right? To rope ourselves in, to see ourselves within the bounds of the good community, the good people. At the bottom, this is the problem, okay? The facade of greed, this is the problem. The ruler's wealth has made him prideful. And it lends itself so easily to pride, doesn't it? Doesn't wealth lend itself easily to making you prideful? It's it's hard to because we don't even know it, right? We don't even realize it. There are a lot of things you can have and they won't fundamentally change the way that you view the world or that you view God. But money, money, that's inherent to the way that money works. It makes us feel bigger, more powerful. It even makes us feel arrogant. Having money overinflates our sense of self-worth, right? Our worthiness. And worst of all, it removes our need for God. It makes us simply think that we don't need him. That's what we are given to think once we have wealth. We think that God's a good addition to our lives. Maybe that he's some icing on our already magnificent cake, and it begins so subtly you won't even notice it. You go from thinking you need salvation or saving to thinking you need help. From thinking that you're utterly broken, maybe, to thinking that you simply need perfecting. To show you what I mean... Consider New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg, as he's interviewed in 2014. And he has just pledged $50 million of his own money toward new humanitarian causes in New York, which he's been at work in for many years. He's 72 years old, and he's reflecting on his life. This is what one journalist writes. Mr. Bloomberg was introspective as he spoke, and he seemed both restless and wistful. When he sat down for the interview, it was a few days before his 50th college reunion. His mortality has started dawning on him at 72. And he admitted he was taken aback a bit by how many of his former classmates had been appearing in the ad memoriam pages of his school newsletter. But if he senses that he may not have as much time left as he would like, he has little doubt about what would await him at Judgment Day. Pointing to his work on gun safety, obesity, and smoking cessation, he writes with a grin, this is Bloomberg now, I'm telling you that if there's a God, when I get to heaven... I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Again, that's bold. What's his problem? It's not that he's wealthy. His wealth is not his problem, right? It's much, much bigger than that. It's not that money has caused him to be wealthy. It's caused him to be prideful. The same is true for us. That's what this text is showing us here. Our wealth gives us a false sense of security. That's what it does for us. It's not bad. However, it makes us prideful. It invites us to trust in it. By that, I mean to entrust ourselves to it. We trust what it can do for us, right? How our wealth can protect us. I'm reminded of the first answer to the Heidelberg Catechism, which goes something like this. My only comfort in life and in death is that 
I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. But that doesn't describe us. Instead, we hope that wealth has unlimited power to change our circumstances, to fix our problems, to provide a brighter future even for ourselves, for our children, for those in our influence. How? Well, wealth deludes us, right? It misleads us. Because, because wealth is absolutely powerless in the face of poor health, right? Of death, of real heart transformation and even achieving God's forgiveness. Wealth is powerless. We attempt to justify ourselves by something that can do nothing for us. It's powerless. So greed first builds a facade. Okay, that's what it's done in the rich ruler's life here. But secondly, it grips us powerfully. Okay, the grip of greed. Why does Jesus respond to our rulers? How does he respond, rather, to our rulers spouting off achievements? Did you see what he said there? I've kept all those from my youth, talking about the commandments that Jesus listed. How does Jesus respond? Look back at your text there, verse 22. He says, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he, the ruler, that is, heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Here Jesus exposes something, right? The man went away sad. What happened? Well, the answer that he got was completely unsatisfactory. He doesn't go away happy. He doesn't go away satisfied. He is terribly unsatisfied, maybe even depressed as he walks away. Why? Because he wanted his things. It is that simple. The sheer idea, the idea, the offer of getting rid of all of his things and selling it and giving the proceeds to the poor left him despondent. Jesus had exposed the ruler's true love here. His life, his hope, his satisfaction all resided in the things he had amassed. Then in verse 24, Jesus offers this short speech, right? This thing about a camel and a needle. What's that about? Um, You don't have to have grown up in the church, you've been around the Bible a long time, to maybe have heard this concept referred to or taught. And this is often how it goes, right? Some people interpret Jesus' command to go and sell everything you have and give to the poor, metaphorically or maybe purely spiritually, right? He's offering a spiritual command. It goes something like this. When Jesus says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, that he's referring to the ancient city of Jerusalem and where there are, around which there are big stone walls, which are very thick by any wall you've seen today's standard, and there's a small gate, maybe called the camel's gate. So the idea is that a camel would have to stoop down and kind of contort itself, which camels are not likely to do. Probably going to spit on you if they do something like that. You force them to do it. And they contort themselves and shuffle through on all fours. The picture there is supposed to be one of lowness, of humility. And this, some say, is what Jesus is saying is what it's like to enter the kingdom of God. But get this, an explanation, something like this, however possible it might be, and it's not, would entirely misrepresent what Jesus is saying here. It would go against his very message that follows. Instead, Jesus is saying that there is no way for a person to enter, right, to walk in the kingdom of God. They can't do it. It's an impossibility. They must be brought in. They must be brought in. More than that, they must die a spiritual death and be resurrected and reformed in newness of life in the cruciform shape of the people of God the people of his kingdom. There is no meriting admission. Jesus is answering the the, uh, rich young ruler's original question. I don't know if you caught that. He's telling him in plain terms, plain to the ruler at least, 
that there is no thing you can do to inherit eternal life. It can't be done. And again, his question further exposes the ruler here. The ruler didn't only become sad at the thought of losing his possessions. That would actually be giving him far too little credit. His story is much bigger than that. Right? No, rather, he, what lay under the surface or the water level of this ruler's accomplished persona were aspirations, hopes, and ambitions that found themselves in the flourishing of the things he had come to own and the things he had not yet done. A life of poverty is simply not in the plan. Even a moment of poverty is simply not in the plan. He was much more concerned, had placed his hope on his next project at work, right, on climbing toward his next social um, status or position, to even consider the amazing benefits of Jesus' command. It looks to us, I think, like Jesus' command to sell everything and give to the poor simply sounded hard. Because it does sound hard. It sounds hard to me. I'm sure it sounds hard to you. Sell everything you have and distribute to the poor and go follow this person you just met. That's a hard thing to hear. That's why he's saddened at Jesus' words. The same reason that we're saddened. The rich young ruler's identity was actually tied up in the things that he owned. And very often, ours is too, isn't it? The truth is this ruler had actually made his possessions in life into idols. Right? They had become his functional gods. He had turned to these things over and over again to lift his spirits, to give his life meaning, to give him purpose in life, to give him something to do. Think of it this way. This maybe, maybe makes more sense. He began to measure his life in terms of wealth and the things under his control. That became the measure of his life. And we do this too. Think about it. What do you look to to reassure yourself that you're okay, that you're doing all right? What are the things when they're threatened make you anxious that you might lose them? What are those for you? Or maybe ask yourself this question. What do I have to have to be able to say that I'm okay? If I didn't have this thing, then my life would lose its meaning. There's so many things that we turn to in life, maybe in the beginning to lift our spirits, and in the end, they become things that we have given ourselves to, and they can help us in no way. They are not a help to us. Right? They offer us nothing instead. They ask more and more of us. They always ask more of us. They remain camouflaged, especially wealth, and lure us in so that we can give them more of our desire and our energy, and we get nothing in return but a greater appetite for them. I think you see this exemplified in the life of a man named Andrew Carnegie. Um, Carnegie was a rich steel tycoon who lived at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. Um, he lived in the American Industrial Revolution. He was actually a poor immigrant, and when he died, he was one of the wealthiest Americans who has ever lived. Um, his net worth is estimated and adjusted for today's terms. When he died, was somewhere around $298 billion dollars. Just let that number sink in for a minute. It, it can't even sink in. It's so big, right? His net worth when he dies is $298 billion. And what's a little bit unusual for Carnegie is that he had accumulated a huge part of his wealth by the age of 33. Surprisingly young. And at that moment in his life, at 33, he's become incredibly wealthy. He decides to take out this um, exercise in self-reflection. So he writes in his journal, and this is what he writes. Man must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. There's no idol more debasing than the worship of money. Whatever I engage in, I must push inordinately 
Therefore, should I be careful to choose the life which will be the most elevating in character. To continue much longer overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time must degrade me beyond the hope of permanent recovery. I will resign business at the age of 35, but during the ensuing two years, I wish to spend countless afternoons in securing instruction and in reading systematically. What's well, no secret to us a hundred years after his death or so that he didn't reform and that his service to his idol haunted him for decades. Ultimately, it disintegrated his life and led to his reputation as a man of ruthless demands over those who worked for him. Now, maybe more than being surprised, maybe a little depressed too, by Carnegie's failure to act on his own words, to listen to his own voice in his journal, maybe more surprising is the fact that he saw his greed in the first place. That's what's really surprising here. What's so repulsive about the ruler's first question interaction there with Jesus in verses 18 and 21 is that he's about him keeping his commands since his youth. If you're put off by that, that's a good sign, not a bad one, right? You may feel that way because you feel the arrogance in what he says. Hear this. The ruler is blind to his own failure. He is blind to his greed at this point. He simply doesn't see it. And the thing, you know the thing about greed, what's unique about it in particular, it necessarily makes you blind to it. In other words, nobody who's greedy knows that they're greedy. They don't get it themselves. They're not going to see it. No one. I think that says something maybe more about our culture more broadly. We don't have time to go into that this morning. But the point is, you can't, you don't, you won't see your own greed. That's how greed works. To drive that home a little bit, there's... um, a book written by a sociology professor at Boston College named Juliet Shore. In 99, she wrote this book called The Overspent American. In it, she just writes this one sentence. She concluded that of the people who earned $100,000 a year, which today is about $150,000, that only one-third of them agreed with the statement that I can afford everything I need. Only a third agreed with that statement of people who earn one hundred fifty. dollars A year, I can afford everything that I need. What's my point? This is it. You can go ahead, we can go ahead and admit the bald fact that we're greedy, right? You're not the one person in the world who's immune to this, to this symptom, to greed. And that's because of this. I mean, you need to hear that. I need to hear that because of this. If the gospel doesn't hurt, then the gospel loses its sweetness. It loses its power to free you. To put it another way. If you don't see yourself as a sinner, you no longer need the gospel. Jesus frees you from idolatry. In the gospel, he frees you also from the grip of greed by making you wealthy in Christ. But first, you've got to see that wealth causes pride. Right? Wealth that you can possess will always lend itself to pride. That's what it pushes you to. And just about everyone in this room is wealthy, in case you were thinking that thought. Wealth pushes you to pride. And pride and wealth combined give birth to greed. And the way greed works, the way it survives in your life, is by blinding you. You'll never know that you're greedy. And that's what's so dangerous about it. If you don't believe me, then look at the text. Look at our text today. The ruler has no idea that he's greedy. But Jesus cares enough to show him. And the good news is, for him and for us, that Jesus is the only one who has both the compassion and the power to free you from greed's grip. The only one who has the power to free you is Jesus himself.
So the facade of greed, the grip of greed. Now lastly, let's look at freedom from greed. How does Jesus free you from greed? If you're convinced of that, that you, that you may be greedy, that you are greedy, that I'm greedy. How does Jesus free us from greed? The funny thing about all of this is that greed isn't even the half of it. That's only the first part. That's only the first part of the ruler's problem and of our problem. Jesus' words, his commands to the ruler, sound difficult, like we said, right? Selling everything he owned, it sounds impossible to us. But it wasn't, he didn't hear it any differently than we hear it today. It sounds nearly impossible to the ruler and to us. It hits our ears the same way. And I think what Jesus says may be even more offensive to us because we probably just have so many, a greater number of possessions. We're better at securing them. We have more places to put them. It's even harder for us to hear the, the thought, even the, the invitation to lose our wealth. But it's not impossible. Look at verses 28 through 30. That's what they're about. That's why they're there at the end of the passage there. Peter, for once, he kind of gets it. <laughs> it's great, Peter. After he watches this whole dialogue go down between Jesus and the ruler, he essentially asks, Lord, didn't, like, didn't we do this? Isn't this, what, isn't this what you invited us to and what we've done? Didn't we give up everything we have and now we go about serving the poor right with our whole lives? And Peter nails it. And look at how Jesus answers him. Look at his answer there. Yes, Peter, you have. You have done it. And for that, you'll be blessed beyond your wildest imagination. By telling the rich ruler to sell all he has, to give to the poor and follow him, Jesus is actually pointing out something that is vastly larger here. He is showing us that he doesn't just want us to get rid of our stuff. He doesn't want us to just become poor. That's not it. Look at the ruler's question again. It impacts so much. How does Jesus respond there at the beginning? Why do you call me good? That seems like a weird response, right? Why do you call me good? Like, what's so special about that? What's going on? Jesus is showing the ruler that his idea, his his conception of his own sin, his own inadequacy is far too small. The ruler thought that giving away all of his possessions was a high cost to go to enter the kingdom of God. That's why he walks away saddened. He has no idea that the cost is actually much, much greater than that. By Jesus' response to the ruler calling him good, we see that the ruler's idea of holiness is way, way too small. He doesn't know that he's speaking with Jesus, the Son of God. No, he thinks that he is seeking the advice of a wise teacher or leader and Jesus points out, you don't even know what good is. You've got no understanding of how good God really is, how perfect God really is, how holy he is. So Jesus loves him enough to expose him by his answer. Jesus, looking at this ruler, right, he answers him truthfully, but he doesn't reveal everything. Jesus is explaining that the way to merit God's eternal life is in following the law, in living a life that is perfectly obedient, down to the last detail, better than any woman or man or child has ever lived. So there is no earning entrance into the kingdom of God unless you can obey perfectly, which this ruler, which you, which I can't do. The only one capable is God himself. And that's what Jesus is doing on our behalf. The rich young ruler thought that losing his stuff was a big deal. But in reality, his view of his shortcomings was way, way too small. The ruler walks away sad. Why? He thinks that his wealth is keeping him from God. 
That his possessions are what separate him from belonging to the kingdom of God. And that, that is tragically sad. But Jesus reverses it. Right? Jesus shows him that it is neither opulence nor poverty that separates us from God. It is neither legalism nor license to lawlessness that is keeping us from God. It is our own ability to pick up our mess ourselves. Look, this man lives by the belief that if he were just good enough, if he cleaned up his act in some way, if he were obedient enough, that he could be right with God. But his hope is utterly false. It's wrong-headed. It's lacking. Jesus wants him to see that his great wealth is acting as a great, ghastly stumbling block. He wants him to see that he needs God, not that God, a good teacher, can merely help him out a bit or perfect him or give him something he desires. No, the takeaway for you here, listen, the takeaway for you here is, if you're a Christian, you must see how you are blessed without having anything at all. You must see that. No money, no wealth, no power. If I can borrow the words of a wise theologian, Bob Dylan, he responds to a question about his own happiness to Rolling Stone um, when he's 50 in 1991 by simply refusing the terms of happiness. He says this, you know, I'm not going to do Dylan's voice. You know, these are yuppie words, happiness and unhappiness. It's not about happiness or unhappiness. It's either blessed or unblessed. As the Bible says, blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Blessedness is a very different game from the pursuit of happiness. Here's the point. You cannot view your wealth in the same orbit, in the same universe as God's view of you. If you're a Christian, you must realize that your wealth is in Christ and let that lead you to see that your money is good. And this may be a call to repentance. If it is, let it be. Let it be. I'm reminded that Martin Luther's first words of his 95 thesis were something like, Jesus willed that the entirety of the life of believers is to be one of repentance. That is the key to finding yourself in a different category than this rich ruler, to inhabiting a different story than this rich ruler. The ruler is so deluded by his wealth that he thinks Jesus is a good teacher. He's so prideful. Do you see that? That's what his wealth has led him to. If you're wondering this morning how still how to apply it, how to apply what we're seeing in the story this morning, here's some help. Start giving away your money. A little of it, a lot of it. Either way, do it regularly. Right? Give it away. Give to the church, God's mission in the world, his bride. Give it to other good places. I think this is a very appropriate time even to hear that. So where's the grace in all of this? Where is the grace? I think it's right here. It's buried in what looks like bad news to this ruler. Those who are there are saying, then who can be saved? Remember that question? Who can be saved? Then in verses 26 and 27, Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Right here, we have Jesus revealing himself to the rich ruler as the rich ruler. Right here, right here, we have Jesus revealing himself that he is the rich young ruler. Before him, this ruler is the son of God who has given up eternal, his eternal throne in God, in God's kingdom to take on human flesh, right? To be born in a putrid feeding trough to a pitifully poor woman with no husband in a time when unwed mothers were maligned, publicly mocked, and even stoned to death. More than that, we have Jesus, fully man and fully God, who has given up endless riches 
endless treasure and his status of ruler over limitless wealth, we have him coming to us. What the young ruler failed to see is that the man making these demands before him had already done all of these things. He's already done all that he is asking. Before Jesus told the rich ruler to give up his great wealth, his extreme wealth, he first gave up his much greater wealth. And Jesus is saying to the rich young ruler, don't you see? You can't just give me part of your life, just your obedience to the law, just keeping the commandments. You must give it all. You cannot offer some and hold something else back. You must give me everything. Jesus is trying to help the man see that his problem is so serious. He doesn't just need a fix. He must be reshaped completely. Must cover and invade every part of his life. Given the enormity of his problem, he must be utterly remade. Jesus does not and will not hold back from any part of your life. There is no area left untouched. Nothing goes unexplored, uncovered, unembraced. He knows all of you. And before he calls you to die with him, he looks at you and reassures you of his eternal and abiding love. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, please pray with me. Father, we, we hear these words and um, they are hard to hear, even harder to let them settle into the places of our security, um, of our drive for life of our ambition, um, our good ambition, and of our mercy. We pray that you would remake us, Father. Please allow us to receive and embrace this kind of love, the kind of love that Jesus offers us that remakes us, and the kind that makes us truly wealthy. We pray that we would not just hear these as words, but hear them, Father, from your word, and that we will go away changed and remade by them. We pray this in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen.